A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. We've got a brand new week ahead of us. We have many wonderful things to discuss and some great sponsors to thank as well. Let me do that right off the bat. A shout out to our friends at HSLAmmo.com, also pure-light.com, and of course, MonticelloCollege.org. I just appreciate these sponsors. I've got links to the show notes or links to them in the show notes at the BrianHydeShow.com and would encourage you to uh, take a little click on them, find out more about them, send them a note of thanks, tell them, yeah, 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 I heard Brian talking about you. And uh, if you need their service or you need their, their particular product, I'd say go for it. All right. That said, how are you? Welcome to uh, the world of wrong think, challenging the official narratives, and boy, have we got some great ones to challenge today. I wanted to start out with something that came to my attention over the weekend, and I guess I'm I'm jumping in with both feet because just by the name I'm about to drop on you is going to inv- it's going to evoke some interesting reactions in people. Maybe you're one of those people who have a very negative reaction. Maybe not. But uh, it appears Ammon Bundy is filing the paperwork to run for governor of Idaho. Now, this, of course, you know, brings uh, predictable, you know, hems and haws from people who are his critics. Well, if he hates government so much, why would he want to run for it? And I don't I don't think they're paying attention to, to what's been going on. This is a guy who has been under attack by government in various ways for quite some time. And I mean, most notably, going back to 2014, um, that's that's when you saw government uh, literally come after his family in a militarized, absolutely disproportionate show of force over an alleged debt. I mean, it's you, if you weren't at the trial, if you didn't hear some of the things that came out during the trial, no, they literally built a task force, a militarized task force, like they were going to go take down an Al-Qaeda cell because Ammon's dad fired the BLM for managing his grazing leases and said, never mind, we'll take care of it ourselves. Every dime I give you, you're just turning around and using to try to put me out of business, which, by the way, they did to at least 50 other ranchers in the area. The judge saw through it. The jury saw through it. Actually, multiple juries have seen through it. People still shake their heads. I don't understand why those Bundys ain't sitting in jail. That's because the truth came out and government was the aggressor. It was it was the state that was in the wrong. So if Ammon is running for governor, let's just follow this thread. Let's keep pulling on it and see where it leads. Is it likely he's doing so so that he can have the the reins of power and he can go around and victimize people like he's been victimized? I don't think so. And again, I say this as someone who has uh, has been personal friends with Ammon, who has associated with him, and um, no, the guy's not perfect. He wouldn't claim to be. But his goal is to stop, to put some friction against that government juggernaut that is not only been going after him and doing its best to ruin his life and his family's life, but also has taken aim at you 
and me and various other people who don't yet uh, perceive the threat that they are facing. But I have to say, I did get a chuckle out of uh, the, the spectacle of witnessing authentic panic. If you ever wondered what authentic panic looks like, wow. Just look no further than the reaction of certain leaders in the Idaho GOP to Ammon's uh, impending run for, for governor. I mean, it, it's... You'll have to read the denouncement for yourself. I do have a link to a Newsweek article, and I mean, you know, the Idaho GOP. Oh, well, uh, we, we can't support this kind of craziness, and this this is just a, a bad name on politics. And, uh, you know, and what they're saying, I'm just going to translate this for you. You don't have to agree with my translation, but what they're saying is, if this guy gets into power, we won't have the ability to exploit power the way that our, you know, political opponents have been exploiting it. That's what they see. They see a threat to their ability to use the state for their purposes, not to represent people, not to represent good government that is it's called into existence for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing your natural rights. They see this as a potential threat to their ability to tell other people what to do and make it stick. And I'm sorry, that's evil. I don't care if it's Republican-flavored statism or Democratic-flavored statism or some unnamed form of statism. If it's all about forcing people to do what you know is best for them or what is politically expedient for you or what punishes those who would disagree with you, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That's, that's coming from a place of darkness, and it's coming from the source that has been the cause of every instance of massive misery and atrocity in human history. So, I would encourage you. Yeah, I don't care if Newsweek gets the clicks. Click on the article and read the reaction of members of, the, of some of the members of Idaho's GOP to Ammon Bundy's uh, upcoming run for governor. Oh, they want to excommunicate him so badly from the political process. And, and you know, if I sound like a fanboy, sorry. I guess I'm going to sound like a fanboy. The reason they're so frightened is because he does represent a very significant threat to their ability to utilize power over other people. Now, again, if you think that, well, that's a good thing, though. We should have power over others. I'm sorry to say this, but you're part of the problem. And you should you should really recheck and rethink your premise of what exactly is the purpose of government. By the way, I loved Ammon's response. Uh, he sent out a, a text response through his uh, People's Rights Organization, and it was humorous. I mean, he at least looked at it with with uh, with a sense of humor and says, "Look, guys, you're, I mean, they're trying to make a big deal out of why he's not even a registered Republican, and he's you know he can't even run for office. He's not legal to run for office in this state. Oh, they're very concerned that every jot and every tittle be observed, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. Guys, it's a matter of filling out a piece of paper. That's it." And Ammon very, I think, correctly noted, guys, I, I didn't need your support and wasn't counting on your support in the first place. Now, he can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, again, knowing Ammon personally, knowing the, the character of this guy, um, I think he'd probably be more alarmed if GOP leaders in the state of Idaho strongly agreed with him, rallied around him, if they considered him one of them, because he's clearly not one of them. 
He's someone who actually understands at a very personal level that very few people have ever understood. You know, people who haven't sat in jail for two years on trumped-up charges, only to have the government turn around and dismiss those charges with prejudice because it was clear that its case was falling apart like a soup sandwich, and it was clear that it was government actors who were in the wrong, who were trying to provoke violent confrontation, and they very nearly succeeded. I mean, I I understand. If you don't want to agree, that's fine. You may think, well, Brian, you're as bad as Ammon. And, you know, if you tell me that, I'm actually going to take it as a compliment. But then again, I do have this small advantage of actually knowing the guy personally. I was there at Bundy Ranch, was not there for the standoff, but I was there for something far more important that took place that morning at Bundy Ranch. And I can tell you whatever misgivings I have had over, you know, the the handling of uh, Bunkerville or even the uh, Malheur Wildlife uh, Refuge occupation. I really believe the guy's coming from a, from a pure place. And people who have taken the time to, to dig in and ascertain the facts can pretty clearly see this. But most importantly, people have got to understand what is the state? What is government for? And when we make the argument against you know, being embraced by that, that smothering grasp of political government. There's an awful lot of people, and I mean good people, who will argue against, hey, you don't want to do that. Well, that's just anarchy. That is just craziness, and everybody will be running around doing whatever they want. And So when we come back, the other side of the break, I'm going to share with you an article from Kent McManigal. And I think this is actually one of the better illustrations of why the state needs to be minimized in our lives. Now, look, for the record, like Ammon, I believe there is such a thing as good government, but it's very limited in its scope, and it's very carefully constructed, and the the upper limits of its power are clearly defined because the only reason legitimate civil government exists is to keep you free, to protect your God-given rights. Unfortunately... There are a lot of folks who want to carve out exceptions. Well, we want to find ways to put government to work for the people, which they mean their people, their interests, at the expense of other people. I'm sorry, but I'm diving in with both feet. We're, we're going dark places today. Hang on. It's going to get bumpy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I presume I probably scared off a good portion of my audience with that first segment. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to be seen as the guy who's uh, questionable, maybe a little bit crazy. Because I'm definitely out of step with a lot of folks. And, you know, it's, it's not because everybody else is stupid and I'm smart and everybody else is evil and I'm good. It's just I've, I've devoted the better part of 30 years of my life to understanding why freedom matters, why limited government is a blessing, but unlimited government is not. 
Now, if you have any familiarity with history, you should probably, you know, start to pick up on the pattern where government observes no effective limits to its power. Really ugly stuff starts to happen, and it doesn't happen all at once. It comes in incrementally on cat's feet, bit by bit. Each little uh, uh, usurpation of power, each little encroachment on the rights of the people isn't that much worse than the one before. And it's a tendency of the public to sit back and to wait to, to see, you know, well, you know, surely if something is wrong, there will come a moment where we all simultaneously click, hey, you can't do that, and we all rise up together and say, you can't do that. But that shock never comes. Because too many people are either complacent about it or willfully ignorant about it. They don't want to see what they don't want to see. And there's an awful lot of people to the tunes of well, several millions who were actually pretty heavily invested in it. They benefit from things being the way they are. And they sure don't want to upset something that's lining their pockets or giving them the opportunity to exercise power over others. So, when it comes to people who argue against the need to free ourselves from the grasp of political government, oftentimes they don't realize their arguments work against them. I'm grateful for Kent McManigle for a piece he wrote for EverythingVoluntary.com. This is my uh, moment where I will tell you, if you subscribe to their email, you're not going to be disappointed. Several times a week, you'll have some great content land in your email inbox. Stuff worth considering. You don't have to agree. But I found it to be very worthwhile, thought-provoking content, and they do a marvelous job of aggregating some points of view that you're not going to find on the typical, we're part of the government to, you know, mainstream media. Ken McManigal says, any argument against the idea of having a free society, one free of political government, also works against the idea of having such a government holding society down. And he says, the only reason anyone still tries to make this argument is because crimes are called by different names when they're committed by government employees instead of by the self-employed. And when you pretend or when, when you maintain that criminal acts aren't criminal, well, you can justify just about anything. Theft is called taxation, asset forfeiture, or eminent domain. Kidnapping becomes arrest or sequestering. Slavery is called conscription. Mass murder becomes war, while while murder on a smaller scale becomes capital punishment, collateral damage, or department policy. Propaganda becomes known as schooling, patriotism, or a government press release. And torture becomes enhanced interrogation. Now, he says the biggest lie of all is when the warlords occupying your land are called the government to hide what they are and to make them sound legitimate. Often the warlords are dishonestly called leaders rather than politicians or rulers, but the lie doesn't change what they are. His point here is you wouldn't put up with being treated by self-employed criminals the way that politicians treat you. The only reason you turn a blind eye to those who violate you now is because they twist the language to favor themselves. Most people, he says, generally believe government is necessary or even good because they've endured 13 or more years of brainwashing in government-controlled schools. Getting them when they're young and gullible works wonders. But he says if you won't live peacefully among others without government looking over your shoulder, well, you aren't really a better person just because it exists. In fact... You could, if you're smart, get a government job so you can get away with acts you want to commit from a cover of legitimacy. If you can call the theft you commit taxation and pretend it's in the victim's interest, you'll probably never face justice. 
Yet the act remains the same, taking property that doesn't belong to you from the rightful owner who would rather not lose it under threat of violence. Kent McManigal notes, As has been said, anarchy is no guarantee that bad people won't violate the natural rights of others. But government guarantees they will, and will probably get away with it too. Their offenses will be ignored or excused because it's all legal. He says, if humans were angels, no political government would be necessary. But because they aren't angels, political government is a terrible idea. Now, I suspect he probably takes a little bit harder stance than I do. Because I, I don't maintain that, uh, well, you know, it's it's all bad and it all needs to go away. Um, I believe there is a proper role for government. But I also believe that that proper role means solving problems at the lowest possible level. But too many people, myself included at points in my life, were conditioned to see the state as kind of a hybrid god slash parent that's there to, to take care of us and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And all I'm asking you to consider is could such a concept be taken to extremes? Could it be taken to the point where government doesn't view you as uh, you know, a living, breathing individual with, with inalienable, meaning untransferable, inviolable rights that are yours by virtue of the fact that you are a person? And instead, it turns you into a commodity. You know, maybe one step above a cattle with a tag in its ear, you know, and, and you know, the need to be herded and prodded and, and sent this direction and that direction and told what to do and how to do it. Okay, I'm going to put a couple cards on the table. These are going to make some people uncomfortable. But if you want to understand where I'm coming from, and I assume, you know, you're listening, so maybe maybe you'll at least humor me on this. You don't have to agree. But for the record, what we see playing out before us is not purely a political battle. Unfortunately, things get caught up in politics. Everything politics touches tends to become a power struggle of some sort. It, it turns into a tug-of-war. But what we're really seeing is different aspects of a battle that has been continuing and been going on since long before any of us ever existed. And you can phrase this a couple of different ways. You know, it's the battle between good and evil. It's the battle between light and darkness. I prefer to think it's the battle between choice and coercion. And for those of you who are of a more religious background, um, I don't know, maybe you recognize, maybe you remember. There was a war in heaven fought over the concept of will man be free? Will you be free to choose for yourself? Or is it better that you be forced and coerced in everything that you do so that everything is perfectly safe, everything is covered, there is no risk. Now, unfortunately, there's also no growth that goes along with that approach. But that's the dynamic that's driving all the little conflicts you see around us, and the big ones too. They are part of that eternal war between coercion and choice. Some prefer the term agency but it's, it's your autonomy, your ability to, to act rather than just simply be an object that's acted upon. And the names and faces change over time throughout human history. 
The tactics may change from time to time, but the dynamic that drives this battle is exactly the same now as it was throughout the halls of eternity. Will you be free or not? And there's there's nuance, you know, I'm not trying to make it sound as black and white as well, you know. There's my way or there's the highway. I wouldn't be that presumptuous. But when you start to look at this in the context of maybe there's something more at work here than just simply, you know, political parties wrangling for a bit of power. At least to me, it seems to make a whole lot more sense. And it's one of the reasons why I maintain there's a very, very powerful spiritual dynamic to this battle. Choose carefully which side you wish to embrace. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I apologize, I really am on a bit of a tear today, but uh, man, it feels so good to talk about some of these things. And look, if it isn't for you, that doesn't make you a bad person. This doesn't mean that, well, you're inferior and you should run along and play with a ball or something. No, there there are some things that uh, some people are ready to hear and that others are not. And that's, and you know, or even to consider. It doesn't mean that I've got to, I've got the truth nailed down here. But I am making my best effort to speak the truth as I best understand it. There are times where I feel like my voice shakes as I speak it because it's scary and I understand, wow, this is ooh, this is going to marginalize me if, if I say this. But I will not lie to you for the sake of just putting soft words in your ears and making you feel warm and fuzzy. I think there's some very powerful... Um, there, there's, some, there's some powerful things at stake here, and there's some powerful ideas that have to be considered. And I've been at this for, for long enough that I've been, I'm willing to commit to certain truths. I keep an open mind. I'm always open for more truth to, to add to my understanding, to, to give me greater perspective on how things are. But I've also uh, come to a place where on some things I'm quite willing to commit to the truth. By the way, when people start invoking phrases like, you know, the public interest, that's a time when you and I should be paying very close attention. I don't care what, you know, political persuasion you are or even where your your understanding is at the moment. When you hear phrases like the public interest or the public wants this or we, uh, you probably should pay attention. I'd start by putting my hand on my pocketbook and being, well, okay, hang on a sec. Somebody wants access. Ethan Yang, writing for the American Institute for Public, uh, I'm sorry, the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER. He has an article called The Public Interest and the Constitutional Order. I'm going to share some excerpts here with you because I want you to, to consider what he's talking about here. He says, in Ayn Rand's fictional novel Atlas Shrugged, there's a famous scene in which Hank Reardon is on trial. The following exchange occurs between Reardon and the judges. Mr. Reardon, the law which you are denouncing is based on the highest principle, the principle of the public good. At which point, Reardon says, who is the public? What does it hold as its good? 
There was a time when men believed that the good was a concept to be defined by a code of moral values and that no man had the right to seek his good through the violation of the rights of another. Now, Ethan Yang says, Rand likely included this line as a reference to the arbitrary foundations of many authoritarian government policies, such as the ones she escaped from in the Soviet Union. In regimes such as Communist China, the Soviet Union, North Korea, and Nazi Germany, vague justifications such as the public good, the people's will, the good of the nation, and other warm-sounding phrases are used to preempt gross abuses of power. If the only threshold for exercising state power is vague terms like the public good, then there really are no limits to power. Ethan Yang says one important feature of modernity and a society with enlightenment values is the idea that individuals own their bodies, which logically leads to the idea that individuals have rights that ought to be respected. People are not the property of the state, and the government simply can't tread all over its citizens' rights without a clear justification often enumerated by established codes of conduct. That is why free societies have constitutions that explicitly outline what the government can and cannot do. The population, generally speaking, consents to be governed with the understanding that the government will not only protect their rights, but act within its established boundaries. A government without clearly established powers and restrictions is a very scary thing. Such defined boundaries also give it some level of legitimacy and separate it from other organizations such as the mafia and crackpot dictatorships. He says, We call this system where everybody, even the government, is held accountable to basic and explicit standards of just conduct, the rule of law. Now he goes on to say, The trial of Hank Reardon would come off as satirically amusing if it wasn't so real. In the United States, vague doctrines like the public interest play a key role in deciding whether or not certain uses of government power are permissible. In an original understanding of the Constitution, the government is bound by explicit text and intent, with very few exceptions. However, over the past hundred years or more, the, the Constitution has increasingly taken a deferential backseat to the will of the government although often through the executive branch and the administrative state. And here he goes into some history that's really useful in understanding how this came about. He says, The use of the phrase public interest famously arises in Munn v. Illinois, a Supreme Court case decided in 1877 regarding government regulation of prices set by privately held companies. Now, the companies being targeted with regulation argued that they were protected by the Constitution via the 14th Amendment, which outlines due process and equal protection. A similar lockdown, or I'm sorry, a similar argument would apply today to businesses that were targeted by the litany of arbitrary lockdown regulations, such as non-essential business closures. However, as we know, the court did not rule in the business's favor setting precedent for the virtually non-existent economic protections we have today. By the way, a later case, Nebbia v. New York, would drop the standard even lower to a rational basis, not a public interest. This is a summary provided by Oya's notes. Justice Waite for the court took a broad view of the state's police power. He argued that the states may regulate the use of private property when such regulation becomes necessary for the public good. Waite resurrected an ancient legal doctrine to support his view. When property is affected with a public interest, it ceases to be juris privati only. 
end quote. I mean, look, you don't have to be cynical, do you, to recognize that that's going to look a lot like a blank check to most politicians. Well, if I can just say this is in the public interest, why, I can justify just about anything. Ethan Yang says, under this understanding, the government could exercise power over anything it wishes, provided it can find a reason why it would be in the public interest. Oh, gee, do you think if you set a few government lawyers loose to find a public interest that they'd have any trouble conjuring up something? Yeah, he thinks that uh, there's probably a lot of people employed by the state for that very purpose. Hey, Find a reason. Find something that we can cloak in flowery, legalistic language that will justify whatever it is we really want to do. Yes, sir. The heels click, and they're off to work. Ethan Yang says this means law-abiding citizens and their private property, be it a business or an intimate possession, are never safe from the ambitions of the state. That's because it has no real meaning, and it's impossible to truly understand. Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Queensland, Jane Johnston, writes, The public interest is such a complex and tricky concept to navigate because it has intentionally evolved as ambiguous and mutable. It has no overarching definition because it is contextually determined in scope and purpose. Ethan Yang goes on to point out public interest legal scholar Edwin Rikosh gives a far more telling definition of what the public interest really entails by writing, quote, at least in Justice Marshall's understanding of public interest law, enlarging and strengthening the public sphere is an important public interest law objective in the United States as well, end quote. He also notes that Justice Louis Brandis took a similar view of the public interest. In fact, before being appointed to the Supreme Court by Woodrow Wilson, Professor Peter Dreyer explains that Brandis, quote, served as one of President Wilson's key economic advisors persuading the president to create the Federal Reserve System and the Federal Trade Commission and to push for the Clayton Antitrust Act and the 16th Amendment, ratified in 1913, which allowed Congress to levy an income tax. End quote. So this brings us to the administrative state, which has since exploded in power and scale in recent decades, but is most commonly associated with the ambitions of Wilson who viewed constitutional limits on power with disdain. In his eyes and in the eyes of many who believe they represent the public interest, government power and expertise are the solutions to society's ills. Ethan Yang goes on to say this idea has certainly been represented by the jurisprudence of progressive judges and the attitudes of progressive intellectuals who, much like Wilson, view the public interest much like they view the Constitution. That is, It ought to be malleable and change with the times, but in practice simply change to the behest of those in power. Law professor David Upman explains this when he notes, Times change. Rights change, whether by addition, subtraction, or otherwise. The job of the progressive jurist is to facilitate and, if necessary, initiate this redefinition. How could that be anything but a blank check with mischief written on the subject line. I mean, it's human nature, right? This is It's human nature to, to do what's in your best interest or what benefits you the most. For people in power, yeah, this is it. Let's just invoke the public interest and we can do whatever we want, regardless 
of the wise limitations on our power that were set in place by individuals, uh, well, let's just say with a lot more foresight than uh, our current politicians possess. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I'm sharing an article here from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. Public interest and the constitutional order. I know for some people when you invoke words like constitution, you know, their eyes glaze over. Oh, you're one of those, you know, John Bircher or whatever. But when you understand that the U.S. Constitution is put in place and was put in place not only to call the federal government into existence, but also to very carefully outline what its powers are and define the upper limits of those powers and to forbid the government from acting or operating beyond those powers. I mean, it's funny. I Every time, you know, someone who's pushing for gun control says, well, you know, all we need to do is repeal that Second Amendment. Uh, it's better if it had never existed. And what they don't understand, this is what they fail to understand. The right to keep and bear arms is part of the essential right to life. Every living thing will try to defend itself with whatever tools it has at hand. That's a right that exists and existed long before 1787 when the Constitutional Convention took place in Philadelphia. It's a right that continues to exist independent of government. But some people have got it in their heads. Well, no, no, no. The Constitution gives us the right to free speech and gives us the right to keep and bear arms and the right to be free from quartering troops in our houses and gives us the right to privacy. No, it doesn't. It forbids government. It's binding on government, not on you and not on me. So I'll go back to something I mentioned in the first segment of the show. Your rights depend on you understanding what they are, claiming, using, and defending them. You can do it peacefully, but it's going to make waves because there are people who want to control you and there are people who want to, you know, put you under their boot or put a saddle on you and ride around whipping you with a riding crop. If you know what your rights are, all you have to do is withhold your consent. And that's frustrating at least to the people who want to be in power. Back to Ethan Yang's article. The Public Interest and the Constitutional Order. In his book, Justice Neil Gorish offers a stinging critique of the progressive view of constitutional rights by citing the infamous Supreme Court case Korematsu v. United States, where the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was found to be constitutional. And he contends that it was precisely because of this fluid view of the Constitution and the rights it protects that led the court to rule that such egregious government policies should be allowed to stand because they believed that the war effort shouldn't be impeded. Now, Ethan Yang says a more originalist understanding of the Constitution would have held that the government still needs to follow the text of the document regardless of how fashionable its policies may be. And if I can just offer this this quick sidebar to that, can you see the wisdom in why 
There is no escape clause or there is no exceptions clause. You know, the Constitution shall apply and, you know, we, the undersigned here, agree to this. The state shall abide by this unless something scares us. Because if they put that kind of an exception in there, you know there would be endless opportunities for scary things to be held up and justified as, you know, this is why we have to violate it. And by the way, there were flaws within the Constitution itself. I mean, after all, it uh, pretty much codified slavery, right? Well, how can we get around this? Uh, Well, for the census, we'll count them as three-fifths of a person. And, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act, that was constitutional. So, yeah, in some places, in some ways, it should be changeable, which there was a fifth, uh, there's, I'm sorry, an Article 5 amendment process given whereby, you know, states could amend the Constitution as necessary. They don't even bother with that now. Now, with this executive pen, I'll just sign this order and (laughs) it has the force of law. That's pretty scary. That's That's a blank check for someone with ambition to go nuts. Ethan Yang says, Today, we certainly live under the consequences of such a fluid way of thinking about individual rights and the Constitution. That the government, often through the unaccountable administrative state, may exercise vast power over society and the lives of individual citizens. Power conceived not from clearly outlined rules, but under the pretense that it believes that what it is doing has a rational basis and that it's serving what it defines as the public interest. A definition that has encompassed everything from constructing a regulatory apparatus that not only intrudes on economic and civic freedom, but costs trillions of dollars a year in compliance fees, to an outright assault on the Constitution, like the Patriot Act in response to 9-11. Ethan Yang says, clearly the pursuit of the public interest has resulted in anything but. So the key takeaways here, he says, the public interest and other phrases like it have far too much importance in the functions of our government. No honest person could ever look at the Constitution and suggest that it can exist harmoniously with the many exceptions that have been carved out over time in the name of the public interest. Much like every other vague objective put out by those in power, equality and uh, in power, equality and equity being two of their vogue phrases, by the way, its doctrine of application is fundamentally opposed to the idea of limited government and individual liberty. The principle of self-ownership and basic inalienable rights cannot exist in a world where the exercise of power is not governed by explicit restrictions, but by nebulous doctrines such as the public interest. In theory, the public interest and other vague objectives like it have no discrete meaning. In practice, they simply represent the ambitions and goals of those in power. Wow. Beautifully stated, Ethan Yang. Might want to subscribe to the uh, AIER.org email. By the way, seven days a week, I get these in my inbox. They have a wide variety of topics that uh, cover a lot of different subjects. I just found this one particularly useful. Let me give you a quick uh, rundown here of some of the different things. Um, This is from one of the emails I received over the weekend. So AIER had articles about uh, remembering the Tiananmen Square massacre. That also, by the way, was from Ethan Yang. Um, Inequality can be hurtful in unfree societies. 
uh, talking, let's see, Richard Ebling had, a, had an essay on Jacques Novikow, sociologist of peace and freedom. Uh, critical race theory comes for the legal academy. And fish, rice, and what the green movement really stands for. I mean, just, there's, this is just a tiny sampling, but they, they have a lot of different articles that to cover a lot of different topics. If you're a person who wants to just have a better vantage point from which to understand things that are going on without getting bogged down in, you know, the bumper sticker slogans, red state, blue state, all that back and forth, I strongly recommend it. Now, a couple things also that came up over the weekend. Um, I don't know if you if you heard President Trump made a speech, and it sounds like uh, he's he's still angling to be a player in the uh, 2022 elections, possibly in 2024. I don't know. I'm not uh, I'm not of the the mindset that uh, hey, this particular politician is going to be the one to save us. But a lot of people still fall under that spell. And uh, this is all I'm going to ask you to consider. I don't want to bash on Trump. I don't want to sit here and bash on Biden. And hopefully you notice, I really don't spend a lot of time talking about the personalities involved. There's a reason for that. I don't spend time talking about the personalities because the personalities and the issues are usually pretty transitory. Okay, you get some long-timers. I mean, Joe Biden's been about 50 years or close to it uh, serving in public office. The principles, though, are what will bring us back on course, if that's our desire. And if we don't want to get back on course, if we want to continue to drift with you know wherever the current is taking us at the moment, then uh, this, is, this is what we have to focus on. We've got to focus on what are... What are the principles? You can ignore it if you just want to drift, right? But if you really want to see things move in a productive direction, you've got to be willing to focus on the principles. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that, therefore, once everybody understands the principles, everything is just going to magically right itself. No, um, I think what's going to happen is something probably closer to this. People who understand principles will recognize, hey, government at the local level, the state level, the federal level, isn't following this principle. And then they make the conscious effort to withdraw their consent. That's a very peaceful thing, by the way. You withdraw your consent. You simply stop giving legitimacy to, you know, those leaders or to that particular government entity. There's actually a marvelous essay on this from a Frenchman who was 18 years old at the time he wrote it back in the 1500s, uh, Etienne de la Boite. Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. I know it's a mouthful, but boy, it's powerful stuff. Take away the support, and they collapse. That's how it works. This is The Brian Hyde Show.